0: Really, back in in Revelation chapter 17 through chapter 20, Um, and it's just this demonstration of God systematically, methodically, one by one, destroying His enemies. Uh, Babylon, uh, the corrupt city, falls in chapter 17 through 19. The second half of chapter 19, it's the beast and false prophets turn. They're thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus. Then in Revelation chapter 20, God sets his sights on Satan himself. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire right alongside the beast and false prophet. Then, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Revelation chapter 21 turns a big corner. And no longer are we talking about the destruction of God's enemies. We're talking about the construction of heaven. Um, You remember last week we talked about the new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem descending from heaven to earth. God's holy city. Uh, being established for for God's people. And really, uh, these last 16 verses um, are an exhortation to live in light of the heaven that is to come. John is using his last verses to really challenge us to live in light of our glorious future. Um, So as we start these verses, um, the angel's going to speak, John is going to speak, Jesus is going to speak, it's kind of all mixed up, but um, I'll try to read it such that it makes sense. But John is hearing from Jesus and hearing from the angel one final time as they exhort us. So I'll read these verses for us. Revelation chapter 6 through verse 21. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. And the angel said to me, John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, he has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. I am a fellow servant with all those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still do filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, Jesus, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we expect in the future determines the way we live today. What we expect in the future determines the way we live today. So for example, as an engaged couple begins to expect their wedding day, there is so many activities to carry out until then. Invitations, guest lists, bridal party, groomsmen, dresses, tuxedos, location food, DJ rehearsal. That's not the half of it. I looked at one website that had a 90-point checklist for what to do before your wedding day. The expectation of their wedding day creates all this activity until then. Or as parents begin to anticipate the birth of their child, there's numerous steps to be taken. I'd say about nine to ten months worth of activity to be in fact, so it ends up working out well. It's the anticipation of the due date that makes them get real busy until the day draws near. Or as our students, as Derek talked about, as they begin to expect the start of Hope Week or this mission trip to India, there are all sorts of preparations to make. Raising money, building a prayer team, purchasing flights, packing your gear, training with the team. The expectation of the trip creates this sense of urgency for them to act. So in each one of these situations, whether it's an engaged couple or expecting parents or short-term missionaries, they can't just live life as normal as the day draws near. They can't show up on the big day and say, okay, so now what's the plan? No, the object of their expectation influences how they live, how they prepare, what they do. Well, the book of Revelation has presented to us the glorious and gruesome trajectory of history. John's visions describe how God's enemies in the physical world and his enemies in the spiritual realm are destroyed in the lake of fire. God's creation then experiences total renewal and his people experience complete redemption in the new heaven's and new earth. So as Christians, this is our ultimate expectation. This is the big day for us. This is what the apostle Paul calls our blessed hope in Titus chapter 1. This is what the apostle calls the hope of glory in Colossians chapter 1, when death is destroyed and we God's people are vindicated. But imagine an unborn child's due date comes and the expecting couple is surprised that mom is feeling birth pains. They call the doc and say, you know, we're really freaking out. Mom is experiencing like these contractions of muscles sort of in her abdomen, belly area. And the doctor's like, well, yeah, today's the big day. Today's baby's due date. Did you forget what's going on? This is something like what's happening for the early church and what can happen for us. Despite having this great expectation of Christ's return and future renewal, we lose sight of it. We don't expect it. We aren't living accordingly in light of it. So as the Apostle John writes his final chapter, he urges us, live in anticipation of Christ's return. Live in anticipation of his return he shared with us this great in time cataclysmic triumphant vision of jesus return and ultimate victory he's vividly described for us our blessed hope the hope of glory and with this last chapter he's now going to emphasize okay so now therefore live in anticipation of this vision, your expectation of this glorious future should determine the way you live today. So what specific directions does he give us? How then should we now live until our expectation is fulfilled? First, John is going to call us to keep God's word. Keep God's word. So to really understand everything that's happening here, we need to look all the way back at the start of the book of Revelation. So in chapter 1 of the book, John describes how Jesus appears to him in a vision. It's the first heavenly vision that's described in the entire book. John tells how Jesus' voice sounded like a trumpet. His eyes looked like flame of fire. His hair was white as snow. His face shone like the sun. His feet were burnished bronze, just this jaw-dropping, amazing vision of Jesus that stuns John as though dead. Well, the first words that Jesus then speaks, the first words he speaks of the entire book of Revelation, it's right there in this vision of chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus says to John, write, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches. Then later in the same chapter, same vision, verse 19, Jesus again says to John, Write, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So this is Jesus not just gifting John with these heavenly visions. This is Jesus commissioning John to write down these visions. So the visions John was receiving were not meant to be handed down to the future through oral tradition. No, they were to be committed to writing. And so now we come to Revelation 22, the end of John's written record, his concluding remarks. And much of his final remarks in the book are about the book. So in these final 16 verses, The phrase, the words of the prophecy of this book, that phrase is mentioned five different times in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 18, and verse 19. So if you're just reading through Revelation 22 and you see this phrase, the words of the prophecy of this book mentioned over and over like this, then it should catch your attention. This is clearly a theme. This is clearly a key idea of the chapter. Well, it's no surprise then that John starts off this entire section this way. Look at verse 6 again. He writes that the angel speaks to him and says, These words are trustworthy and true. So the angel, as the messenger of God, he gives divine affirmation that what John has written is accurate and reliable. It is trustworthy and true. The angel then continues. He says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So the angel here refers to God as the God of the spirits of the prophets. In other words, God is the one directing the spirits of the prophets. So God's prophets, whether Moses, David, Daniel, Isaiah, or John, none of them are just speaking what's on their hearts no in their preaching in their writings none of them are just saying whatever sounds good to them no the lord is the god of the spirits of the prophets the lord is the one who directs his prophets for what to say and what to write and it's so that we can know what they say and know what they write is trustworthy and true as he previously said so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Peter writes in that chapter, he says this, No prophecy was ever produced simply by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel says right here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Truly prophetic words are trustworthy and true, Because the Lord is the God of the spirits of the prophets, directing the prophets for what to say and what to write. Then in verse 7 of chapter 22, there seems to be sort of an interjection from Jesus. The angel was speaking in verse 6, but it seems like Jesus breaks in real fast in verse 7. Verse 6, the angel says that John has written about what must soon take place. Then Jesus says, and behold, I am coming soon. Okay, so let's stop here for a minute, because for a long time, Christians have been questioned and criticized for verses just like this one. So this verse and a few others throughout the New Testament seem to indicate that the earliest Christians believed that Jesus would return in a relatively short time after the church had begun. Maybe 40, 50, 80 years, but definitely not 2,000 years, which is about where we are now, so what's this about? Jesus says I am coming soon, and here we are in 2023. Nearly 2 millennia later. How are we to think through this? Well, there's a few ways we can respond to this. I'll just mention a couple of them. First, the apostle Peter again in 2nd Peter writes about this exact question. He mentions that there are some mocking Christians saying, "Where is the coming of the Lord? What is the delay?" And Peter answers in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So Peter says that God's sense of time is very different from ours. For him, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So if Jesus came back in AD 60 or in the year 2023 or in the year 3000, it's not much different to him because God doesn't count slowness the same way that we count slowness. So that's one way to respond to this question about how Jesus could say that he's coming soon, when it's been about 2,000 years, God's definition of soon is just different than ours. Something else to consider is that the word translated here as soon, when Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, that word can also be translated quickly, and not in the sense of quick like a short amount of time, but quick in the sense of suddenly, instantly, out of nowhere, similar to the way that Jesus says elsewhere, he will come like a thief in the night. He will come like a flash. He will come without warning. He will come when you least expect. So yes, it's been to us a long time since Jesus said that he was coming soon, but perhaps he didn't mean coming soon as in a short amount of time, but in a sudden instant, in which case we need to be always ready, on alert, living in light of his return. So, verse 6, the angel says that John's word is trustworthy and true about what must soon take place. Verse 7 says, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon or quickly. Then Jesus continues, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, this is the first of five times that he mentions this phrase, the words of the prophecy of this book. And what he says about the book is that those who keep it are blessed. And the word blessed here is the same word Jesus used in the start of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so forth. The idea here is that Jesus is affirming, almost congratulating those who keep John's prophecy. He's saying, blessed are you? Prosperous are you? Congratulations to you, the good life you have if you keep the words of the prophecy of this book. So the question then becomes, what exactly does it look like to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Like what command or commands is God telling us to keep through John? Because normally, When we think about the book of Revelation, we don't think of a long list of do's and don'ts, like maybe in the book of Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy or even in the book of Ephesians or the Sermon on the Mount. In those parts of Scripture, there's a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of moral direction. That's not what we typically think about with the book of Revelation. It's much more of a story than it is a book of laws. So what does it look like to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Well, I think we get a clue in the very next verse. Jesus says in verse 7, blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Then in verse 8, John writes, I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. I'm a fellow servant with your brothers, the prophets. I'm a fellow servant with all those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And I'm convinced, friends, that is the command of the book of Revelation. Worship God. Ascribe highest worth to the living, true God. So throughout the book of Revelation, the 22 chapters, this word for worship is used 24 different times. So it consistently comes up throughout the book. You remember in chapters 4 and 5, we get this amazing vision of the throne room of God, where the 24 elders and the four living creatures never cease to bow down in worship before the throne of the Lamb. But then as the story continues... Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, we find out that a large part of mankind worships idols. Idols made of gold and silver. They worship created things rather than the Creator. That's Revelation chapter 9. Then in chapters 13 and 14, we're given a terrible description of how so many worship the beast. This entity of evil who uses the rulers of the earth to persecute the church and to corrupt the earth. For example, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, John writes, All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was signed. So that's the dividing line between those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, that's the difference between those who go to heaven and those who do not. It relates to who we worship. Do we worship God or do we worship created things? Do we worship the Lord of heaven and earth, or do we worship the rulers of the earth, inspired by the beast as they are? So friends, I have to ask, what do you worship? Who do you worship? That's the issue of the book of Revelation. That's the summons from heaven to us on earth. Worship God. So who do you worship? What do you worship? Here are some other questions, diagnostic questions to get at that question. What is most important to you? In your list of priorities, what is most important to you? Well, here's another one that's really helpful for me. What is the thing you most easily spend your money on, right? There are some things I'm happy to spend my money on it. There are other things I really grit my teeth, like when my kid's school ask me to pay for something else. I'm like, I already pay taxes. I thought this was covered. And they're like, no, one more. There are some things that are hard to pay for. Other things, I'm happy to give my money to it. What's the easiest thing for you to spend your money on? What is your purpose? What are you living for? What is the thing that you get out of bed in the morning for? What is the thing that consumes your thoughts the most? What is your deepest source of joy? What is the thing that gets you excited, that stirs your affection, that causes you to lift your hands and sing for joy? These are all questions that, if answered honestly, can start to get at what we really worship. Now you may be reflecting on some of these questions and think, sheesh, I am not really sure that I worship God. I mean, I way more easily and happily pay for the things that relate to my hobbies than I do give my tithe at church. And it may be true for you that you are completely not worshiping God, and you need to radically reorient your life around the Lord. I know that was true for me until I was 20 years old. My life was totally centered on myself. I'm playing football and partying. And God was not just far down on the list of things I worshiped. He wasn't even on the list. And maybe that's you. If that's you, I want to urge you. Worship the living God. Repent Turn from worshiping created things and center your life on Him who is the center of the universe, the Lord Jesus. But for others of you, maybe it's not that you don't worship God at all. It's just that you struggle to worship God. God is on your list of things you ascribe worship to, but it's hard to struggle to keep Him at the top. Well, if that's the camp, that you're in, and I certainly admit that I am there with you, I want to encourage you that we are not alone. Even the Apostle John here mistakenly, incorrectly worships the wrong thing. He falls at the feet of this angel. He wrongly worships a created being rather than the Creator God. And so the angel has to rebuke John, don't worship me. I'm a creature just like you. Worship God and that's the same challenge that you and I need to hear every Sunday as God's word is preached over us and every other day for that matter worship God make Jesus the center of your life now the problem is usually most of our idols don't rebuke us for worshiping them like this angel rebuked John for worshiping him Most of my idols just want to suck me in further and further and further. And friends, that's why we need one another. That's why we need to sit under God's word being preached so that we can be called away from the false gods that steal our affection and ultimately steal our joy. We need to be called to the true and living God. By God's word being preached by our brothers and sisters in our lives, we need to hear the summons of revelation. Worship God. Center your life again and again and again on him who is truly worthy of worship. But this is how you keep God's word. This is how you experience the blessed life, not by worshiping a politician, not by worshiping your significant other or your children, not by worshiping your money or achievements or possession or status, but by surrendering all those things and worshiping God. God, making Him the most important thing in your life, making Him the purpose of your life. So back to our original question, how should we now then live expecting the return of Christ? First, we're called to keep God's word by worshiping Him. Secondly, we're called to wash our robes, to wash our robes. So look back at verse 10 and verse 11. It's hard to tell exactly who is speaking. It's either the angel or Jesus, or the angel speaking for Jesus. Either way, we certainly know by verse 12, Jesus is speaking. But look at verse 10 and 11 again. John writes, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. In other words, let it fly. John, I've had you write the words of this book, now send it disperse this word, calling people to worship God because the time of judgment and the time of redemption is near. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right. Let the holy still be holy. So it seems like here, verse 11, is an ironic rebuke, an ironic challenge to repent. So you think about that. He tells evildoers to keep doing evil. He tells the filthy with sin to remain with filthy, but I actually think he's telling them to do the opposite. So it's similar to this. I've most often heard this comment when a wide receiver and a defensive back are talking trash to one another. If you've ever played football, you have heard receivers and DBs talk trash because they are usually the most arrogant of all the positions and uh, love to talk trash as they play alone on an island out there. Or you can go on YouTube and just search like NFL Trash Talk, and inevitably you will see a DB and receiver going back and forth. But you know, it's these two athletes. They're going head-to-head with one another, jawing back and forth, and very often it'll be said by one of them, Keep on talking. Keep on running that mouth. Now, what does it actually mean when he says, "Keep talking, keep running your mouth"? He actually means, "Stop talking, or I'm about to show you up." Stop running your mouth, or I'm about to make you look like a fool when I score a touchdown on you. Well, it's that sort of ironic rebuke that Jesus is speaking here. Let the evil doer keep doing evil. Let the filthy stay filthy because you're going to find out. Verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one according to what he has done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, when I return, it's payback time. When I return, evil will face justice. I'm the first and the last. I start things and I finish things. So keep on, evildoers, keep on rebelling, keep on sinning. You're going to find out. Gratefully, he continues in verse 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, so that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the city are the dogs. So sorry, dog people. All dogs go to heaven, my foot. It's right here in black and white. (laughs) Outside are the dogs. I'm just kidding. Dogs in the ancient world were not bred to perfection as they are today. No, they were not domesticated very often. They were filthy street animals. If you've been to a third world country, if you've been to a city in a third world country, the dogs are not cute and cuddly, they are not domesticated, they're mangy, they roam. That's the kind of dogs he's talking about, not fluffy at home. (laughs) Maybe he'll go to heaven. (coughs) (laughs) So John says, outside the city gates. These are the questions people care about too. (laughs) Will I see my animal in heaven? That's like the second most pastoral question ever. (laughs) The stuff that matters. So John says, outside of the city gates are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practice falsehood. Outside the gates of the heavenly city. So John says, when the new Jerusalem, when the holy heavenly city descends to earth, like we talked about last week, there's going to be a division. There's going to be separation, a dividing line. Those who are evil, those who are filthy, those who are committed to all sorts of sin, many of them listed here, they will be outside. But he says those who wash their robes, those who wash their lives from sin, they will have the right to the tree of life. They will have the right to enter the heavenly city. And we know from Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, that when it talks about washing their robes, it's talking about washing their robes, making them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, being Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood was spilled to redeem us, to save us, to wash us, to renew us. Because the truth is, friends, there's nothing we can do to clean our lives up. There's nothing we can do to make our lives worthy of heaven. We can never do enough good deeds. We can never fulfill enough religious rituals. We can never meditate our way to nirvana. We cannot save ourselves. We need a deliverer. We need someone to do what we failed to do, and the only one is Jesus. Jesus lived a loving and righteous life, the kind of life that you and I should have lived. He lived a perfectly beautiful, joyful, righteous life. And then he died the death that you and I deserved, suffering God's judgment on our behalf. His blood shed in our place as a sacrificial lamb. So when you trust in Jesus, you are washed. All the filth of sin is completely removed every shameful thing you've ever done, every awful thought you've ever entertained, every hurtful word you've ever spoken, every hateful feeling you've ever felt, the deepest stain of sin on your life is cleansed only by the blood of Jesus. And so I appeal to you, by faith, by trusting in Jesus' work on the cross, wash your life in the sin removing power of his blood and if you do then when he returns there will be no recompense for you to face because the price of your sin will have already been paid and you'll actually start to get excited about his return you'll start to actually long for his return and that's exactly what we see happen in these final verses in verse 16 Jesus declares that he is the promised descendant of King David, that he is the bright and morning star, the one whose arrival brings the dawn of a new day. So in verse 17, the spirit and the bride cry out, come, Jesus. And then John says, those who hear his prophecy say, come, Jesus. The spirit of Christ and the bride of Christ and all those who hear and believe in the word of Christ, they all long for and call for the return of Christ. They want the bright and morning star to rise. They want to bring the start of the new world when heaven comes to earth. Then in verse 20, Jesus once again confirms, surely I am coming soon. And then John the Apostle adds his own words, desiring Jesus' return. He says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you see, this is what happens when we worship God. When we wash our robes in the blood of Christ. Not only do we start to live in light of Jesus' return, we start to want Jesus to return. We start to long for the day when he will make all things new. We start to yearn for the day when he will bring justice, when he will flood the earth with his presence, driving out evil. And the things of this world, as awesome as they can be, they don't compare to what it will be like when we see him face to face, when we worship him with complete abandon, when we worship him with nothing holding us back. And so with John, I ask you, What's holding you back? What's holding you back from making Jesus the center of your life? What's holding you back from living with Jesus as the center of your life? What's keeping you from washing your life of sin in the blood of the Lamb? None of it is worth it. None of it is powerful enough to hold you back. And so I appeal to you right now, even in this moment, maybe as we sing, surrender those things to God and come to Him in humble faith and start to live for the arrival of His kingdom. Pray it would be so for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we... Respond to God's word.